Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include bank runs, my interview with Rent Spree's Michael Lucarelli on the impact of home builder sentiment on the rental market and correlations with the purchase market, and reaction to Friday's payrolls report. I'd like to thank today's podcast sponsor, Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. Where should we start the week? How about with an old-fashioned run on a bank, eliminating any talk of another Fed rate increase? People wonder, where do I bank? Is it big enough? Is there enough regulation? And so forth. Lenders are making sure that their warehouse funding is not only from one bank, since nothing will shut a lender down faster than a lack of liquidity and inability to fund loans. With the demise of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, which was announced yesterday, there's only four megabanks in the U.S. And how did regulators not see a huge bank failure coming? California's Silicon Valley Bank, New York's Signature Bank, Generally speaking, bad news drives interest rates, including mortgages, down. A bank failure of any size, and especially one as large as this, spooks investors who immediately engage in a flight to quality, which means moving assets to the least amount of risk. Fears of a broader fallout across the banking sector deepened as SVB Financial Group on Friday became the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. Soon before the FDIC stepped in, 40-year-old Silicon Valley Bank was forced to sell most of its available for sales securities at a loss to offset a drop in customer deposits. It announced a $2.25 billion capital raise to offset the situation, but it was too little too late. Silicon Valley Bank was a lender to some of the technology sector's biggest companies. Customer deposits tripled from 2018 to 2021 when interest rates were low, and tech startups were cash-rich. But when rates soared in 2022, the VC market slowed to a crawl, as did deposit activity at SVB. Things were made worse when the bank invested what funds it did receive in bonds that would later lose value as rates climbed. In the end, it was SVB's decision to invest a high portion of customer deposits in bonds and mortgage-backed securities that quickly deteriorated in value. Things reached a boiling point after the bank suffered a nearly $2 billion loss from selling securities and turned to the capital markets for help. The FDIC stepped in and transferred all deposits, both insured and uninsured, and substantially all assets of the former Silicon Valley Bank of Santa Clara, to a newly created full-service FDIC-operated bridge bank in an action designed to protect all depositors of Silicon Valley Bank. Depositors will have full access to their money beginning this morning. Shareholders and certain unsecured debt holders will not be protected. Senior management's been removed, and any losses to the deposit insurance fund to support uninsured depositors will be recovered by a special assessment on banks, as required by law. The Federal Reserve Board will make available additional funding to eligible depository institutions to help assure banks will have the ability to meet the needs of all their depositors. Fed Chair Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen released a joint letter along with FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg saying, among other things, the U.S. banking system remains resilient and on a solid foundation. 
in large part due to reforms that were made after the financial crisis, that ensured better safeguards for the banking industry. Those reforms, combined with today's actions, demonstrate our commitment to take the necessary steps to ensure that depositors' savings remain safe. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show Mike Lucarelli, CEO and co-founder of award-winning prop tech company Rentspree. He founded Rentspree in 2016 to reimagine how people rent homes, with the mission being to pioneer a new rental process that allows all renters, landlords, and agents to interact seamlessly. Today's interview is all about the rental home market, and I guess a good starting place would be a kind of a high-level overview. What's the current state of the rental home market? Uh, open-ended question for you. Yeah, thanks so much, Robbie. Um, first of all, I think the rental market's really important to talk about. When we talk about housing in general, it's an undeniable part of the housing mix. And so there's a lot that goes on within the rental market that influences the, the for sale market and, and even like construction and everything like that. Um, what we're seeing within the rental market now, it's um, quite a bit different than what it's been for the past few years. What we're seeing now is basically like the fifth um, consecutive monthly decline in rent prices, which um, that hasn't happened for quite some time now. It's been uh, a number of years since we've seen that type of decline. And even like the prior three months that we saw, um, like going into like um, October, November, December, um, those were the largest monthly declines um, really since about like 2016. So the rental market itself is... Um, dipping a little bit, but that's not to say that we're seeing like, it, it, even though it's declining, it's not like a huge, huge decrease that's making rentals all of a sudden like hugely affordable out of the blue. It's a slight dip. It's a little bit out of character for what we're normally seeing. Um, and maybe it offers some relief for renters out there. Um, but by and large, um, what I would say with the rental market is that it's still largely the more affordable uh, option for housing for many people, which is why, you know, we're seeing just still an overall overall increase um, in the proportion of renters um, compared to the total um, number of households in the U.S. I'm sure those falling prices are welcome relief for many, and uh, well, they come it comes on the heels of rapid price appreciation over the last couple of years. So if you were to average things. Yeah. It uh, seems like it's bringing things back toward a, a more sustainable balance. I want to ask you, does the rental market historically mirror demand and pricing when it comes to the, the primary or, or secondary home market? Um, I think there's a slight correlation there. Um, and, and I would also say it is, you know, to your point, um, the, the de- decrease is a little bit of like a correction also from just the huge increases that we did see um, during the pandemic. But yeah, I would I would definitely say that there's um, a slight correlation when we talk about like the secondary markets um, and things like that. Are we seeing an increase or a decrease in in competition for rental homes? I guess by from buyers, and then also you know the competition for renting has that abated or is that still going strong? And uh, you know, what's what's the ultimate effect on cost? Yeah, I think like right now it's a little bit of an interesting environment where we're seeing um, a lot less movement for people like going from rental to rental. Um, and I think even like looking at myself, it's a kind of like a good example. I'm still a renter today. And I'm, I like basically am renting an apartment um, here in Southern California. It's a one bedroom. And like during the pandemic, I was interested to 
see if I can upsize and maybe rent a little bit of a bigger place, right? We're working from home now. Um, you know, it's getting a little bit cramped in my apartment, but um, just the cost to move to a larger rental was prohibitive for me. So I ended up sticking around kind of in the current rental that I had. And so I think that there's more demand now with these prices relaxing a little bit and you are starting to see a little bit more people able to move around a little bit and possibly do um, an, an upsize, which is um, something that I think many people were waiting out on. So we are starting to see more demand and more movement loosening up in the rental market where during the throes of the pandemic, everyone was really kind of hunkered down um, and really like not able to move much with those high rental prices. So you are seeing a lot more demand now. Um, and then like, of course, you know, we have to talk about the mortgage rates as well, which play into all of this, whereas many people would be kind of getting to that point, um, you know, especially when we talk about millennials, where they'd be able to afford to purchase a home. Um, you did see, you know, uh, that kind of spike in mortgage rates that happened and it, it hasn't really quite gone down, um, still like at a pretty high point now. And so this is also kind of encouraging people, whereas they might move to being able to purchase a home. Now they're pretty much sticking out at, at renting and possibly upsizing. So moving around within the rental market rather than making the jump to home ownership. So there's kind of like some interesting dynamics going on on that front. Yeah. I want to ask you personally, how, what's, what goes into your decision-making process between staying in the current rental spot you have versus upgrading to a larger space versus saying, I'm going to take the plunge and actually buy a home. Yeah, I think it's just a function for me, at least I'm thinking about like long-term, um, you know, just like long-term wealth building is how I would put it. And I, I use that term wealth building lightly because it's not like quite the case for me right now, but um, I'm just really being cognizant of how much my housing expenditure is. And the last thing that I want is to um, spend an exorbitant amount on housing, um, whether it's on a rental um, rent price, rent prices, that is, or maybe it's a mortgage that might be expensive. And like for me, um, you know, I'm factoring in things like, you know, like if I were to move to purchase a home, I'm going to be paying more than what my rent is today. Um, and so for me, I'm factoring in like, will the appreciation of a home um, exceed and overcome the increased amount that I'm spending now on mortgage mortgage rate over time? And what, what's really the break even point? When we look at rent payments that I might be making compared to mortgage payments that I might be making over time, factoring in appreciation of a home that I, I might purchase. So that's kind of like what I factor in now. Um, and unfortunately, now with the mortgage rates this high, and especially with my market, right, it's also a little bit different. In Southern California, the home prices tend to be even more expensive. So it makes it even harder when you do see this increase in mortgage rates, well, the home prices are that much more expensive to begin with. So um, a lot of the like, rates that I was looking at for even like a comparable property when I was looking at purchasing, um, it's like four times more um, of what my mortgage rate would be compared to what I'm currently paying for rent. And so it, it, it like for a long time didn't really make much sense for me to do that. So I'm continuing to kind of watch the market, but those are some of the things that I kind of look at. And, you know, I am hoping to like be able to purchase a home at one, at one point pretty soon here. I agree with you. If, if historically house prices appreciate at seven or so percent a year and mortgage rates right now are almost 7%, it's hard to justify mm -hmm. it as an investment. And additionally, a lot of people are going to want to put 
in renovations to the house and they, they don't take into account all the insurance and taxes on it. Yeah, it's it's a big oh. expense out there to to buy a home. Uh, the big talk in the, the mortgage industry, at least I know it, it pertains to housing in general, is supply. It, it seems like builders can't keep up with demand or they don't want to due to the cost of building and their shelving projects. There's a lot of pressure on home builders to alleviate high prices by producing more homes. Are we seeing a lot of these new builds being flipped into rentals? Yeah, I, I think we are um, more so. And I know I was looking at like um, a statistic here where like um, basically like about 5% of all single family houses that developers have started to build in 2022 are, are planned rentals from the start. Whereas like um, about like 10 years ago, um, instead of being 5%, that was about 3%. So we are seeing a lot more builders kind of like now building some, especially these single family homes with the in- intent from the get go for them to be rentals. And I think this is just kind of the the, the market meeting um, consumer demands where they are and really understanding that the mix of rental versus owner, renter versus owner, pardon me, is kind of shifting over time. And so we are starting to see uh, more purpose built um, units for those people that are coming in as rentals. And especially like the single family is quite interesting because you do have more people that are, yeah, they're having to rent, but maybe they are looking for a little bit more space too. So they're more interested in having like a single family versus a condo or a town home. And how can renters put themselves in the best position ultimately to buy a home? And I guess, I guess going further on that, how do you prioritize near-term comfort and enjoyment which which could cost more than than skimping on on current rent so that you can save up money for a down payment later on. Yeah, so this is um more maybe more like personal like opinion, but for me, I always have found that kind of postponing um you know like um, person like postponing uh, short term gratification leads to kind of like better um, long term gratification over time. So I think that sometimes, you know, when people, like you kind of mentioned, right, like when people maybe dive in and become a homeowner um, a little bit sooner while they kind of get saddled with, you know, hey, like you hear about people that are like, what is it, like house poor where they um, their mortgage rate is high and they don't really have much income um, left over after paying their mortgage. So they kind of suffer later on and they don't really take that into account when you also look at, you know, like the full gamut of closing costs, looking at renovations that need to happen and upkeep. So I always feel like, um, at least for me, delaying a little bit on on some of those decisions to really make sure that you're um, in a really great position and you're really looking at, um, you know, your income ratios to what you'd be spending, especially taking into account the full flux of the elements that you would, the full element of costs that you would incur, I think is really important now for people. So not jumping the gun, I guess, is a short, short way to answer that question. But putting, coming back to putting themselves in a good position, uh, I think it's really important, especially now with, with the, this environment when the, the rates are higher than they've been. I think there's still opportunity to be able to get good rates. It's just a function of really making sure that, you know, like you're having a good credit, I think, is just important. And most, pe- most renters, I don't think, think that much about it or they don't think about it as much as they should be. And there's some like easy things, right? And I don't need, mean to rattle off like, credit building tips, but, um, you know, I think like one big thing that we've seen is like the rent rent reporting. Um, that's a little bit more novel out there. You're starting to see some of these, um, companies like, um, Isuzu that 
are facilitating the reporting of rent payments to the credit bureaus. So for those listening, um, you know, most times when people are making rent payments, um, it's the largest expense that people typically have, but there hasn't historically been um, infrastructure in place for those rent payments to be reported to the credit bureaus. So renters aren't really able to take advantage of the um, benefits that they would get from making on-time payments when it comes to their credit. So making, trying to figure out ways that those um, rent payments can be reported is important because it will help build uh, credit history for some of the renters that may not have such a large credit history to begin with. And then that can help get a little bit more relaxed on the mortgage rates when the time comes, or at least make it easier to qualify for a, a favorable mortgage. Yeah, I was going to say the the rent reporting to the to the credit bureaus is fantastic uh, because, like you said, it is the biggest monthly expense for so many people. And if they can demonstrate a history of repaying that, then they should be fine on on repaying a home. I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you before I let you go. What are you working on over at RentSpree? For us, just kind of like what I mentioned there is one of the big things that we're working on now. So where we do operate with Rentspree. So first of all, we do provide rental software that really focuses in on the mom and pop uh, landlord segment of the rental market, which is quite large. Actually, right now, mom and pop landlords comprise about 50% of the total rental housing in the US. So it's quite large, but it tends to be underserved by software in many ways. Um, A lot of what we think about when we think about rentals is you think about multifamily and kind of institutional management companies. And there's tons of software like out there for them, like Yardi, RealPage, Appfolio, MRI, Entrada, the list goes on and on. But these softwares are really not a fit for the most part when we kind of talk about these small mom and pop landlords. So they just have a lot of trouble handling just some of the most basic of basic processes and procedures that are just necessary to manage um, their rentals. And so that's where we come in. We provide um, screening. We also do provide rent collection and rent payment services. We also um, help like for tenant management. So landlords can manage their tenants a little bit easier. So we just basically come in and give them um, something that's a little bit closer to parity when it comes, when you compare to some of the technology that's out there on the multifamily side. And so that's that's what we've been working on. And a big push for us has been looking at, okay, now um, as a landlord, you don't have to collect rent via paper check or Zelle or Venmo anymore. You can collect it uh, through an online payment software that's really easy to set up. And then we're now um, getting closer to the point where we're actually be able to facilitate the reporting of those rent payments um, that are being processed on our own platform, which would really open up um, opportunity for a lot of these renters that they are renting from mom and pop landlords, but there's really just no conceivable or convenient way for them to get the, their payments reported. So those types of things are coming up and we're really excited for what 2023 has in store. Well, I wish you the best of luck at Rent Spree and I, I want to thank you for making the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robbie. Take care. Mortgage-backed securities and U.S. Treasuries ended a volatile week last week with strong price gains after action was marred by growing uncertainty over SVB Financial's future. And a concern that the bank's share price collapse would be indicative of a bigger issue in the banking system. The newfound concern overshadowed the release of the February jobs report. Aside from that, last week's headlines were initially dominated by Fed Chair Powell's testimony to Congress, as well as labor market data. Interest moved higher 
after his comments suggested that the ultimate level of the Fed funds rate could potentially be higher than previously anticipated and that faster tightening may be warranted. The shift of the probability of a 50 basis point hike at the upcoming FOMC meeting above the probability for another 25 basis point hike. And those comments were a departure from his comments in January when he stated that the disinflationary process had begun. Friday's payroll data showed the U.S. economy added 311,000 jobs in February, well above expectations of 200,000. The unemployment rate increased from 3.43 to 3.57%, and additionally, the job opening and labor turnover survey, JOLTS, indicated the number of available jobs fell by 410,000 to 10.824 million, and the number of voluntary quits also declined. The Fed will need to see more signs of a cooling labor market before shifting focus away from aggressively fighting inflation. This week ahead is expected to see more drama over the collapse of SVB Financial Group and the implications for the banking sector and venture capital ecosystem. Economic releases will also dominate the conversation about stocks this week, with the Federal Reserve meeting rapidly approaching. The headliner will be the Consumer Price Index report for February, with a slight moderation in the year-over-year inflation rate expected to 5.6%. Meanwhile, producer prices are forecast to decelerate to a 0.3% month-over-month gain from 0.7% in January. This week is also packed with other market-moving potential data points which could swing the Fed's view on the following week's FOMC decision, such as retail sales, as well as business inventories, Fed surveys, industrial production and capacity utilization, leading indicators, and Michigan sentiment. The week kicks off with a quiet start, however, with the February Employment Trends Index due out later this morning. With no economic releases of note so far, we begin the week with the two-year yielding 4.28%, agency MBS prices better by a half versus Friday, and the 10-year yielding 3.55 after closing last week at 3.70%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Two brothers were fishing out in the Irish Sea. They lost their oars and were wondering what they would do. One of them grabbed a bottle that was floating by. He opened it and a genie came out. Obviously, the genie offered to give them one wish. After thinking about it, one of the brothers exclaimed, Turn the sea into Guinness! The genie, after getting over his surprise, said, Granted, and then vanished. After a few minutes, the other brother exclaimed, You idiot! Now we have to piddle in the boat! (laughs) Thanks again to Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. Questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities? Send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.